Hey nerds, do you like comics? Then you should definitely check out what we're going to call our cousin podcast, Girls With Issues. It includes Billy Bones and Vicky O, my two all-time favorite people in New York State. Listen to them geek out about comics on a weekly basis. Girls With Issues, you can follow them on Twitter, you can check them out on iTunes and Facebook, and definitely give them a good old shout out because we love them and we think you will love them. Thanks so much. Check out Girls With Issues. Sound check, sound check, check one. Sound check, sound check, check two, check two. You know, Brian, I have a a very long uh, and very detailed family history. Mm Mm-hmm. So I've been doing a little additional research, and it turns out, you're not going to believe this, my sixth great-grandmother, okay, so going back six times, was actually persecuted and burned at the stake for witchcraft. Really? Mm-hmm. She confessed her innocence the entire time. 104 years old. Taken up to the stake. Set ablaze. And she said these words, though. This is fascinating. She said her sixth great-grandson, who would be born in the sixth month, on the sixth hour, would be a powerful, supernatural being. And you know who I am? I'm the fifth grandson. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? My cousin, my cousin beats me out for it. And only by a matter of an hour. One hour. And you know what he's doing now? He's got his own line of body soap. Wick-a-wash. I mean, seriously? I'm sorry, which cousin is this? Really? Not cool. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. How are you, sir? I am fantastic. Yeah? Truly fantastic. Would you like to share why? Of course I'd like to share why. So, uh, as all of you know, there is going to be a new nerdling introduced into the Nerdonomy family soon. And uh, a little earlier than we were expecting, because Martha had a trip to the doctor and they were actually able to tell us ahead of time... We now know, with reasonable confidence, you know, I would say like 80% confidence, that uh, we are having a girl. Yay! So yes, uh, this will be my third girl, because I do not make boys. My biology only reproduces members of the female sex. It's not just you. You know, we're at what, 53% of the population is now female. There you go. And it's just going up and up from there. I'm trending <laughs> I think the last man on earth is really going to happen. There will be just a bunch of women, and there's one dude who is just tired all the time. There's <laughs> <clears throat> absolutely no privacy. None whatsoever. Zero at all. And, uh, and that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> that's going to be okay. Yeah. It won't be me, so I'm fine with it. I, I feel like I'm the last man on earth, because the only other man in the house is one of our cats. And he's neutered, so I don't even know if that counts anymore. So, yeah. Pretty much just me. It's me and Bonsai, and that's it. Yeah. Well, you know. I don't mind being outnumbered by women. It was funny because, you know, when I used to work at the museum, everyone always said that I had a harem anyway. Because when I was working there, I was pretty much the only guy uh, for quite a while. For whatever reason, uh, the staff was predominantly female. And and all my co-workers used to joke that I was the pharaoh and the and I had my little harem, right? You know, obviously it was a joke, but it's true at home, though. I've got my own little harem. I really do. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know if I'd use the word harem to refer to Well, your... harem in the traditionally Egyptian sense. Not, the harem. Not, not, not the... Yeah, not in the harem in the sense of the Turkish uh, empire. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a much better Well, harems were actually homes for children, too. I mean, the, the concubines and their offspring would all live in the harem. So. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, great, sir. I'm happy for you. I, w- I will say I was kind of hoping for a boy. But, uh... Sorry, Conan the Brickmont's not going to happen. Instead... Even Victor would have been... Victor's a good name, but uh, I'll be introducing the world to Emilia sometime in uh, March. So, very excited. There you have it. A big huzzah for me and my unborn child. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm doing doing all right. It was a long weekend. Let me congratulate you for a successful opening show with multiple standing ovations and... You you have had a really wonderful 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 response to uh, to Les Mis, and so I congratulate you, sir. Thank you. Yeah, it uh, 
we didn't have three standing O's in one performance because <laughs> that would be amazing because then people would just because then people have to find a reason to sit back down and stand up again and that's just kind of odd but um, in fact we've had a progressively more powerful standing ovation with each performance uh, the preview performance on Thursday was one of those ones where like half the audience was on their feet and then by the end of the curtain call everyone was on their feet well I have a confession hmm uh, I've been slowly increasing the amount of steroids that I've been secretly introducing into the audiences that have been going to your show. So it's not so much that they're more enthusiastic. It's just that they're clapping harder. Mm. I'm just going to just let it go. Just, <laughs> just let it go. Um, the opening night, which was on Saturday, we had lights out after the closing number. People get up and we go off stage and do it. Then we get to the matinee on Sunday. Now, matinees on Sunday in Saratoga, of all places, this is not the hoot and hollering crowd. These are the people who the median age is 60 <laughs> for our audience. And this was still a sold-out show. I believe two, two audience members uh, died of, of old age during <laughs> uh, the performance. Well, they were very quiet about it, if that's the case. When we got to the, the Act 1 finale, there, were ch- there, there was hooting and hollering. And we're like... Whoa! We were not expecting that whatsoever. We get to the closing number of the show. Keep in mind, the show runs about three hours with the intermission. It's a long show. Yeah. We we sing, finish singing the last note. Before the lights even go down, bam, everyone's on their feet. That's awesome. It, it, yeah. It was really, really... Uh, and I, this is not a bragging thing at all. I just I am humbled by the, the response the show is getting. Well, you should be proud. You should be proud of your work and the work of your, your fellow thespians. And sure. it sounds like you guys, you know, <clears throat> well, we're rocking it. There's one other little bit to this, too. And for those listening to Nerds on Film, you already know this. We had a special guest in the audience on Sunday. Yes, you did. We had uh, former 49ers quarterback Steve Young in the audience with his family. And I was like, I thought... That was just kind of like, oh, cool. But we met him afterwards. And oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. We went up and talked to him afterwards. And uh, really nice guy. His family is really great. His wife is super nice. And I've seen him around before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's in great shape, too. Like, he's looking very, very healthy. I mean, clearly, you know, his multi-million dollar NFL contract uh, has served him well. So he and his wife did tell us probably the best compliment we've ever gotten. I've ever gotten as an actor. Not to me personally, but he said it to just in general about our whole cast. Yeah. Uh, was that uh, they had seen a version of Les Miserables on Broadway, and our production was better than that. Wow. So, That's a really fantastic compliment. Yeah. You can't get much better than that. No, no I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, exactly. So, Well, sir, I hope you continue yeah. to break legs. If you run out of legs to break and you need assistance, I do have some family members who are in the mob who can assist you with that. You task. know, it doesn't actually mean... Literally breaking one's legs, right? Right. I knew that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to revisit that when we talk about Mr. Shakespeare, because that's where it derives from. Not Shakespeare directly, but from Elizabethan theater in general. So, yeah, anyway. People were very clumsy back then. Yeah. They, they oftentimes fell off of high platforms and bridges. Yeah, sure. Broke, broke legs. Sure. We'll, we'll go with that for now. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Because I want to leave the audience in suspense. Put that as a little bookmark right in there. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Let's get to some listener feedback, shall we? This week in listener feedback. Well, it was a light week for us, but we've uh, got a couple pieces of feedback we wanted to share. We do. We have one from Susan, and she says, I recently found your history podcast, and I'm enjoying it. However, I feel compelled to correct you about Gesundheit from the Superstition podcast. Gesundheit is the German word for health. It is not a superstitious appeal to God for evil spirits to be dispelled, rather a very practical wish for good health to the sneezing person. Keep up the good pods. I'm finding everything which you have actually researched has a good foundation, so I guess I can excuse a goof in one of an off-cuff remark. Well, thank you. Um, We appreciate it. We always look for a correction if we made a mistake, a goof then we always own up to it. And um, and a gazunheit to you, Susan. A gazunheit to you. Uh, I had thought that we had addressed this with Sarah, because Sarah said she made she had the exact same comment to give, but I'm not sure if we said it in the episode that was after that or not. I don't remember. So thank Neither you to I. Sarah and to Susan and to anyone else whose name begins with an S who would like to correct us for this particular bit of uh, listener feedback. We thank you, and Gesundheit. And if anyone says it again, like, thank you, 
we know. Listen to this episode. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Please listen to this episode. We are apologetic. We had a great one from our, our old pal Dino. 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 I, I love Dino. I, I like Dino, too. You know what? Dino always has great questions for us. He does. And he asked for a film shout out. We did not do that one. So I feel really bad. We'll probably get to it next week. But he did ask us a really good history shout out question. And he asks if you could be any historical figure, but you had to live their life exactly as they did without knowing what the outcome would be, who would you be and why? He goes on to answer his own question. Uh, I would be TR. I'm assuming you're standing, uh, TR stands for Theodore Roosevelt, uh, because, well, he's a badass. Thank you guys for being awesome. Keep up the tremendous and fantastic and brilliant work. Interesting question. Who would you be? I I really need to think about it. You go ahead and explain yours. Uh, I'll I'll start then. I'll start then. Thanks. Um, Okay, I I got two. I would really like to have lived the life of Pepe II. Pharaoh in Egypt, Sixth Dynasty, last ruler of the Old Kingdom, so I kind of get a neat perspective of the Old Kingdom in, in a whole. He also came to the throne when he was six, and I think that would be pretty awesome to actually rule a country as a six-year-old. And he is purported to have lived to be 104. So, seems good to me. Uh, the other person I would be is, who is I guess, whoever would have been the longest living person associated with Napoleon Bonaparte, but not to suffer as a result of that association. So I don't know who this person would be, but I'd like to be that. Why? Because I would like to be, have the benefit of being around Napoleon Bonaparte and seeing all that history without dying or later being persecuted. Or being exiled, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you would have been exiled for being a loyalist to Napoleon. Oh, certainly. But I'd like to be the guy who, who got away. Oh, okay. And did well for himself. So whoever that was, I, I would be him. Okay. Too. Yeah. Well, all right. It's not fair, but I, I did one real one, so that works too. I gotta say, Theodore Roosevelt sounds like a pretty cool... Uh, choice because this is a guy who was shot and gave a speech anyway afterwards uh the dude i mean he even said he practiced judo uh in the white house not to be confused with thurgood marshall no no this this was legit he actually knew judo and i think he had a great quote was saying you know what by the time that i've died i would have lived six times the lives you guys would have and he died young he was uh 60 years old when he died yeah, that's pretty young. Pretty young. And he was also the youngest man to assume the presidency. Technically the youngest president we've ever had. But he was not the but he was not the youngest man elected president. Oh that was Kennedy. That's right. But when McKinley was, was killed, when McKinley was assassinated, Theodore Roosevelt was only like forty two years old. So was Obama the second youngest then to be elected? Uh, I thought Obama was the second, youngest. Now. Second youngest to be elected. Oh, yeah, because he was like forty eight, I believe, when he oh, was okay. elected. So he's just behind just behind uh Kennedy. And because Kennedy was forty five. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to steal Dino's. All right, that's fine. That's fine. It's, uh, it's, you know what? I almost did the same thing. Yeah, because it, Theodore Roosevelt... Is a badass. Is a badass. Total badass. And having the teddy bear named after you? Come on. Pretty sweet, any better dude. Than that. And I love yeah. teddy bears, so... Yeah, well, who, who, who doesn't? No, yeah, I, I was obsessed with them as a kid. So. Fascists and Al-Qaeda. That's who. Really? Nah, I don't know. That wasn't very me. Yeah, that's the only thing I, I really got. It's it's been a, it's a late night, so... Fair enough. Forgive my uninspired response, but Dino, I support your endeavor. Indeed. Well, shall we get on with the show? Yes, we shall. As I had mentioned previously, on a previous episode, I recently lost someone who was very close to me. This was my Uncle Fran. And Uncle Fran and I oftentimes had some pretty interesting conversations, let's put it that way. Uh, He was very much into things that were strange and the paranormal and and what have you. And uh, we had mentioned on a previous episode that we would be dedicating an episode to him around Halloween time. But then we thought about it. You know what? The whole month of October is available to us. Four whole episodes. And last year's Halloween episode was so great. We covered so many topics that we just barely scratched the surface on. We thought, what the heck? Why don't we spend this month talking about those topics in full? And uh, I'd just like to dedicate this month, the entire month, to my Uncle Fran, who I know, um, if he was still with us, would have loved to have listened to these episodes. So this is a dedication to him. So, Brian, how are we starting off this month? Which, uh, which topic will begin our, uh, our spooktacular Nerdonomy Halloween month? With, I would think, one of the most famous costumes that you would have you see a little kid dressed up as nixon 
I don't know what school you went to, sir, <laughs> but where I went to school was witches. Oh, well, same thing. Yeah. I don't know why I'm talking so softly tonight, but yeah, I, witches. I, I think you're afraid of conjuring an evil spirit. Yes. Because Either that or conjuring we all that, know that, that in and out burger we just ate. Because <laughs> we all know I dabble in necromancy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of those great necromancy American Necromancy for, for dummies. <laughs> <laughs> Step one, go to graveyard. Step two... Open this book, <laughs> which you should have already done at this point, if you are reading step two. Step three, film B-movie. <laughs> step four, have sandwich. <laughs> anyway. Well done, sir. Well done. Yes, witchcraft. Witchcraft uh, and witches, and perhaps one of the most famous events uh, in early American history, uh, the Salem Witch Trials. Indeed, which we'll talk about as more of a, of a tangent, I think, of the overall topic because as unfortunate of an occurrence as that was this is really a footnote yeah in the well, not really a footnote sure i shouldn't say that it's a section of a much bigger story sure which is well the whole idea of witchcraft how did that develop in the first place uh, we we talked a little bit about magic in general on our uh this is uh you're in for a treat folks episode um, as the precursor to folk, with like folk magic and stuff that led, led into stage magic. But we also talked a little bit about shamanism and a lot about being able to contact the spiritual world, uh, as it were. Yeah. And, and if we're talking about a literal anthropological definition of a witch, it's very different than what we associate with the atypical witches of Western society today. Because witches are oftentimes considered to have been individuals who are separate from sorcerers, right? Who oftentimes a sorcerer is considered someone who utilizes uh, ritual magic by uh, speaking spells and incantations and by actually using physical uh, apparatus in that process, right? So a magic wand, for example. We talked a little bit about this previously. And instead, the anthropological term for a witch is really somebody who is able to enact these abilities purely from the mind. A mystic, almost, if you will. And the origin of the word witch in English, uh, wicca, literally means wise. Uh, it's talking about being knowledgeable and having that ability to, to really use that to influence people around you. And not purely in a kind of book smart way, like, okay, I'm intelligent and I'm intuitive, therefore I can influence people by my actions, but also by a supernatural sense in that I have this inherent ability within me to affect the world around me in a supernatural way. Another word for it is mystics. Yeah. Myst I mean, and there are still people in this world today who are considered mystics in religious communities. And there's I mean, even in unlikely sources, like within the Catholic Church, there are people who are considered mystics Yeah, um, because of their divine or supernatural, in, in your case, uh, connection. And the term witch doctor which we oftentimes associate with uh, with tribes in Africa, right? That's a, that's a word that's kind of become associated with, with that region of the world, originates in its etymology in English and in the Western world and was associated with those wise people, those Wicca, who were healers, who were performing uh, healing, so to speak, healing magics, right? They had uh, the uncanny ability to provide health right. to, their, to their patients. <clears throat> and let's take a second to really talk about why these people are so wise. Because I think the one narrative thread that goes through every culture's concept, whether you call it shamanism, whether you want to call it witchcraft, they all come from, like you said, wisdom. But not only that, uh, and this innate sense for understanding the world around you and understanding how that can be used to benefit uh, yourself and others. Absolutely. Herb lore, for example. Yes, thank which you. I think is what you're getting at, right? Is the ability to, to, to take what's available to you and, and work with it and produce some pretty amazing results. We wish that we had a better understanding of ancient cultures, understanding of their, uh, of their herbs and, and the various medications and, and other uh, solves and treatments that they created that have disappeared to us through antiquity because they were so much more experimental, so much more willing to keep an eye out and find something that was actually good and work with it and try it out and, and use it than we are today. We're so oh, afraid of everything around us. We're so scared and skeptical. Everything we see is thought of as kind of being snake oil. You know, it's thought of just being fake. But there's a real understanding that a lot of that stuff, like things like ginseng, for example, which people write off as being 
nothing more than, you know, snake oil, right, right for example. Instead, it, it has great properties for improving memory and improving, uh, you know, good blood flow to the body. So it, it's a useful herb. Yeah, and in fact, ginseng is an alternative to caffeine. If you're trying to get yourself off caffeine, but you need that jolt in the morning, ginseng has been known to be a, uh, a natural stimulator, basically. Sure. So people who introduce that into communities, who have an understanding of that, obviously are held in that kind of uh, higher esteem. Sure. Which is such a major contrast to today's world, because today's world is so heavily industrialized and so heavily mechanized that we don't take enough time to look at the world around us because it's been covered. We have interference in the way. So in a way, not that we're saying that it's harder for someone to be that nowadays, but we have more distractions that make that to prevent us from someone who maybe has that potential from being that kind of person. Sure. And due to the negative connotation and people labeled as witches, mm -hmm. there's much less uh, acceptance of kind of um, country medicine, if you will. Right. Sure. That kind of that 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 herb lore that still persists today in communities around the world who are more rural in their nature, who have kind of folk medicines that are passed down from generation to generation. There is a resistance to that because it is seen as being you know, false, as, as not being a, a yeah. true form of medicine, when in reality, that there's a lot of it to be benefited from. Yeah, and let's, of course, let's let's hit the button on the head since you bring bringing it up. Why is that judged? Why is that discredited? It wasn't discredited for the first few thousand years of, of civilization, right? It was just the way of life at that point. Yeah, a lot of things started changing around the world about 2,000 years ago. And you find uh, a lot of introductions of new beliefs and new ideas and new very powerful civilizations taking over. And this is predominantly in Europe is what we're talking about, right? Yes. Let, let's, let's just throw it on the table real quick, though. There are witches in every single culture from around the world. And at the very end, I think I'll cover just a couple very briefly. But I think we're going to focus predominantly on the Western idea of witchcraft just because it ties in of course with uh, halloween and our perception of, of witches these days yeah and really what we're it, what it comes down to is just semantics i mean they're not going to be called witches in other cultures of course but they are effectively yeah. the same thing and, and even the way that we look at witches in the western culture is really not witches at all it is more a, a concept of sorcery and uh, and and conjurers and, and and the idea of that uh but Back to my point. So, you know, in Europe, you had all this stuff going on about 2,000 years ago, and you had the rise of very powerful, uh, very wide-sweeping empires, and they were encountering uh, native people who had had very long traditions, uh, very long and traditional pagan beliefs that nowadays are pretty much unknown to us in their original form because there was no... Uh, written language in the majority of these communities. Most of this was passed down from, from word of mouth mm -hmm. and from traditions that, that passed on throughout the ages. But you had in these cultures, in their interactions with these larger, more powerful civilizations, a lot of adoption, a lot of assimilation, and you had a lot of encountering of individuals in those communities that were thought to be powerful and supernatural. Uh, and the Romans were some of the very first to label witches and, and label them as being a negative force something that was uh, destructive. And really what they were were just members of the community that were uh, these healers who were uh, thought of to be supernatural, but thought of more or less to kind of be a threat to these new authorities and new ideas and new beliefs that were being infused into all these different pagan, pagan cultures of Western Europe. And a lot of these things, I mean, they really derived back before even Europe. I mean, if you want to go take it slightly further east into Central Asia... Uh, into the Holy Land, of course, um, we see signs of witchcraft, not within the the Hebrew tradition necessarily, but rather in you know, the mixing of, of the other cultures in that area, probably from Mesopotamia, more than likely, and therefore Babylonia and so forth. And we see it even in the Bible. We, we see it in the book of Samuel. And it turns out, I, I, love, I love this name, man. It, it makes the nerd me go, what? The Witch of Endor. The Witch of of Endor? The Witch of Endor. Oh my god. <laughs> exactly. The Witch I, of... I remember that in Return of the Jedi. It was the it was the Ewok. No, 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 no. no yes, no. no, I remember no, this. It was not the Ewok that. that had all the little teeth around his neck. He was the one with the staff. There was a there was definitely a shaman Ewok. I, I agree, but this is not that. 
Nor is it the woman oh. from. Nor is it the lady from the Ewok Adventures films either. Oh, no. so good though. Ah. Oh. Uh, no, no. And the catchy little song he would sing. The don't look at me like that. I'm just saying. <laughs> just like you just doing this little like he's conducting his own orchestra. He's, he was. No, I'm saying you. Like you were doing oh, this little yes. hand movement as you were doing it. Like you were conducting your own little orchestra. It was cute. Well, in my mind, I was leading a bunch of Ewoks along with me. But <laughs> be um, that as it may, go ahead, go ahead. Tell us about this Witch of Endor. Which, well, God, amazing. I, I don't need to tell it because it was very written. I'm going to just, how about this? I'm going to do something unusual. We haven't done it in our first year yet. I'm going to quote the Bible. Hold the phone. Brian is going to quote the Bible. I've already said I'm not a quoter. And to be fair, I have I have it right in front of me. So, All right, go ahead. <clears throat> the book of Samuel, chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul, uh, for those who don't know, the king of Israel at this time, had put away those who had divined by a ghost or familiar spirit out of the land. Just the first verse alone, we're seeing it. Those who were divined by a ghost or familiar spirit. So in other words, he's referring to necromancy, uh, the ability to conjure up the dead for purposes of divination, Hmm. for being able to figure out uh, the future. Because, of course, in, in the ancient world, transitioning over into being dead wasn't the final straw, right? Where, right. Especially not in the Jewish culture. Certainly you, not in the ancient Egyptian. Yeah. So, you know, this idea of the afterlife blending with the present life was not uncommon at all. And the fact that it could interact with the current life uh, was not uncommon either. And because the ghosts lived in a place, resided in a, in a plane of existence that was slightly out of our realm of time, to the ancient mind, it's not that unreasonable to think that they might be able to help you understand what's going to happen if you ask of it what is to happen, right? So there are people who were believed they could do this. And well, well, necromancy is a is a belief that has permeated around the world. You think about ancient Egypt, right? Ancient Egyptian mythology and legend, just the idea of Osiris, this individual yeah. whose body is dismembered and then brought back and reanimated into existence. Uh, that's got to be at least one of the first kind of examples of necromancy. Yeah. And so I'm going to skip ahead a couple of verses, but I'm going to go very declamatory with this because it just it, it begs to be done. Okay. Then said Saul to his servants, Seek me a woman that divineth by a ghost, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that divineth by a ghost at Endor. And she's small and covered with fur. She's got uh, an affinity for living among the trees. (laughs) She's also quite good in a fight, surprisingly. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment. And he went with two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine unto me, I pray thee, by a ghost, and bring me up whomsoever I shall name unto thee. (laughs) Uh, to, To make a long story short, the prophet Samuel has died. There is no prophecy in the land at this point. Saul is distraught, as any leader would be at this point. He is trying to find some sort of guidance since there's no prophet that has arisen to take Samuel's place. He thought, well, I'm just going to divine up his ghost. I'm going to have someone conjure up his ghost and ask him some, for some advice, basically. Saul did not end well, unfortunately. Shocking. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, he was, of course, replaced by none other than King David. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but there you have it. The, so witch, go, yeah. the witch of Endor. The witch of Endor. <laughs> Sounds like a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> Ready to be, to be displayed. And keep in mind, the book of Samuel we're talking about is uh, somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 3, years old, if I'm not mistaken. I, my, my pre-Christian history, you have to forgive me, uh, is not very solid. But we know it's... It's in around that of time. And really, that continues on into the Christian tradition because in Judaic and Christian law, you know, we see that for a man to try to divine God or to, to conjure up God or anything that was believed to be supernatural was to play God. Yeah. So therefore, it was considered a sin. And um, that is exactly why it was condemned in the early Christian church all the way up into the, the present day. Well, even in ancient Rome, uh, it was a capital offense to be caught performing witchcraft. If you were 
enacting the black arts, so to speak, right? So, if but that's were... a different context, though, because that's the black arts were not that that magic was wrong necessarily, but the black arts were when magic was being used to harm someone else, right? But necromancy has traditionally been considered one of the black arts. It's not considered to be something that is that is of a positive force. Necromancy is almost always considered to be negative, no matter where it is in the world. Fair enough. So, I mean, that, that, well, I, I don't mean it to be argumentative. I just mean it to, to, to make my tie-in to what else was going on at, in and around that time in the ancient world. Because between the 3rd and 4th century, uh, you had the Roman Empire being very concerned with, with acts of witchcraft. And some of the first examples of taking out uh, revenge on these individuals and, and punishing them in what would ev- later, later become a very traditional sense, which is the burning at the stake. Uh, these burnings oftentimes first took place in, in ancient uh, Rome. Uh, and you find that it would continue. It would continue on for a while. But but really, honestly, I would say that it definitely takes a bit of a, of a break. Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with Christianity, which ironically would later be used as the reason to, to bring back persecution of individuals and blaming them as witches. Uh, but originally, if you think about early Christians in Europe who were adjusting out of the Roman Empire, who had long-held pagan traditions and beliefs, they were looking for something that more or less mirrored that. And early Christianity is very much steeped in saints and relics. And these are all things that mirrored, in some way, early pagan traditions and beliefs. And the priest, who was this kind of semi-divine being in that sense, right? It was this person who, in a way, was helping folks to invoke and commune now with a with a supernatural force, uh, was in a way seen kind of like a witch. Uh, they were oftentimes very learned. They were oftentimes taught in uh, the arts of medicine as well. And uh, it's no big surprise then that people would want to assimilate towards Christianity and want to move in that direction and perhaps abandon then their previous held admiration for these individuals, but maybe more so publicly than actually than in actuality, because these people still continue to exist in communities, regardless of Christianity, right? Even though Christianity had replaced some of their more traditional pagan beliefs, you you still had these individuals in the community who were who were very important, who were seen as being kind of special and supernatural. So you you had these members of the community then that were performing more kind of like a white magic, right? They were usually the healers. They were usually people who were doing good, who were doing uh, positive things for the community. And while they didn't hold as high a, uh, an office, if you will, in that community as they did previously, pre-Christian times, uh, they, they were still around. And people knew who they were. They were oftentimes midwives. They were, like I said, these, uh, these kind of witch doctors, if you will. Uh, and they, they used a, a type of folk medicine and herb lore to support all of this. The problem with that is they often end up becoming scapegoats for when things kind of go wrong. And that is really what it comes to when we talk about how witches got demified, right? Because we, here we have plenty of examples of, of positive witchcraft, of, of them being a positive reinforcement in communities. But then how do they evolve and become these uh, agents of Satan in the Christian eyes in, in, in Europe? Well, I, th- I think it's actually really a very simple misassociation, to be honest. One, you have the pentacle, which has often been misinterpreted as a satanic symbol. That's the pentagram, which is the upside-down star. Pentacle uh, was a very common symbol that was used in a lot of these pagan traditions. Uh, And they were even adopted by some forms of, like, the Celtic Christianity. Um, I wouldn't say Celtic necessarily, I'm sorry, but in some more pagan mergers with Christianity, they they saw it as kind of a symbol of, of... divine truth. Um, but the more simple answer to that is that a lot of the pagan traditions believed in a diatheistic system. There was a goddess and a god. The goddess looked rather human. The god, though, was a body of a man and the head of a stag. And the head of a stag well, is this horned-looking individual. Mm. And so you look at it right away and you immediately begin to associate, from a modern perspective, you immediately could begin to associate that with Satan. I actually think that what ended up happening was that's part of the church's means of really sealing it as being the the symbol of, of the devil. Because the, Satan at that point was just a fallen angel, right? That's all we, he's ever been in the Christian church. Right. But there was no visual to associate with that. You know, uh, Lucifer came to 
Jesus in the Bible as a form of a human. You know, he never came as a, as a horned being. In fact, there's no single definition of it. I mean, if you talk about the, the beast in the book of Revelation, sure, there's some elements that are dark. Yeah, and even Revelations wasn't truly canon for a long time, and even its inclusion in canon became highly controversial. Sure, exactly. It wasn't really until, um, you know, well, we, we've already talked about that in other episodes. Yeah. So, case in point, um, it, it goes back again to contrast of cultures, right? When Christianity was trying to spread through Europe, it was being spread with the might of the Roman Empire, or at least what was left of it, right? Right. The church had assumed the Roman Empire's power, essentially, mm-hmm. um, by the fact that, you know, you now have the pontiff, the religious leader of all of Europe. Kings were being coronated uh, by the pope, and that was the sign of validity of your of your rule, right? So if you're being spread by this ultimate authority, both militarily and spiritually, you don't want any other opposition getting in the way of that. So these practices that were, you know, healthy in nature, that were more rural and pagan, but all pagan means is um, of the country, really. Yeah. You know, these more rural country-like practices. Traditions, w- beliefs, yeah. Will immediately be shunned. And this is something that was also said in Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. Now, people make a lot of sp- things speculation about the Da Vinci Code being inaccurate. And it's true, because a lot of that was twisted to f- suit the needs of, yeah, it, of his narrative. Yeah, it was a fabrication. It was a story. But he fills the details with a lot of historically accurate yeah. facts, one of them being how paganism was suppressed by the church in the Middle Ages. Well, you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Early Christians wanted to associate Christianity with paganism, because it allowed for those communities and people that they were introducing it to to more easily adopt to it. Sure. But once you had accepted it and adopted to it, then you wanted to start weeding out some of its more pervasive uh, elements, right? A lot of the iconography associated with paganism and replace it with traditional Christian symbolism. Of course. So taking what was uh, a symbol of nature in that it's a, a powerful force, a bull, a strong force, and then converting that and twisting that into a satanic force makes total sense if that's what you're trying to do, which is move away from the old iconography and replace it yeah. with the new. And these approaches really changed with the popes, to be honest. I mean, some popes were in favor of merging the traditions um, of the peoples around them with the Christian faith, and some were like, no, suppress it completely, you know? Yeah. So, well... So again, the the point is though that uh, witchcraft was now being used as kind of a scapegoat and a way to uh, move away from old pagan traditions and replace them with with Christian ones. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, that that's kind of the point you're making, right? Yes. I think there's another element to it. Go ahead. And it's something that we see not just in witchcraft in Europe, but resulting in witchcraft from around the world, and that is the fear of the unknown and the fear of uncontrollable situations. So what do I mean by this? Well, there's lots of things that happen out of our control. There are natural disasters. There are diseases. Uh, There are things that are frightening and destructive that we have absolutely no way of preventing, or if we did, we just didn't have enough of an understanding of what it was to prevent it from happening, right? So when situations happen like that, you turn kind of to a divine power for guidance and to take you out of that, uh, uh, bring you out of that that fear. And you need to explain it. It needs to have an explanation. And if you're looking to God to provide you with that source of comfort, then you're probably looking to God to also explain what's going on. So there are many of examples around the world of when things went wrong, people needed someone to blame, so they blamed it on those who they didn't see as having control over those who had control over the supernatural world, the people who, through legend, could make these things happen, these witches. Uh, and I think that uh, one great example of this is the ergot poisoning that was occurring during the 14th, 15th 16th, 17th century, throughout throughout the Middle Ages and into the, the modern age of, of Europe. So what do you mean exactly? This is truly fascinating. There's been a lot of research that's been done on this in the past about 10, 15 years. Uh, are you familiar with ergot? Do you know what it is? Uh, to be honest, no, I don't. So ergot is a naturally occurring fungus. It usually occurs and afflicts uh, wheat and barley crops. And it uh, needs a very specific kind of weather condition for it to happen. But uh, when it does, uh, it can be really nasty. It can get in and stay in. So even as you're going through the milling process and you're, and you're turning this into flour and turning it into bread, 
uh, the fungus is still very much present. It's present through the cooking process. It doesn't cook off. And its properties, its chemical properties, the alkalines that are inside of it, essentially are LSD. Wow. Yeah, it's the exact same chemical compounds that make up uh, LSD. So when you eat it, you obviously get very ill. Your body's first reaction is to is to try to expel it. So it's oftentimes first accompanied by vomiting and stomach pains. But when the alkalines end up being absorbed through your stomach lining from everything that's still left in your body, even after trying to expel it, you end up suffering from the hallucinogenic effects of LSD. Ergot also has uh, the ability to contract and constrain muscle. So people who are suffering from uh, these fits of hallucinations are also uh, convulsing and quite violently in many cases, uh, taking multiple people just to hold them down or tie them down so they don't harm themselves. And I think of these and I immediately think of someone who might be under the, the spell of a witch. Exactly. So you basically you're saying that these this totally coincidental occurrence of, of a fungus is what caused these witch hunts to, to take place. It is, uh, it is undeniable. If you look at Europe and you look at a map of Europe and you look at the populations that were growing rye and wheat and barley and you look at the weather conditions that were occurring that would be prime for ergot poisoning to occur for ergot to, to grow on the on on the crops, they line up and overlap exactly. So what you're trying to say is if we were all paleo, this wouldn't have been an issue. There would have been no witch hunts. Exactly. Well, hundreds then. of thousands of people would have been saved. Bring on the bacon, man. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, you know what? The problem is, even knowing that, people would still want their carbs. Yeah, it's even true. Even if they knew it would cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, they would still want their carbs. Yeah, but now that we know about it, I mean, this this couldn't quite happen the same way in the modern world because now that we are aware of that happening, you, you would say no? That's Day-nay? what you think. That's okay. what you would think. So... Uh, I want to talk about this a little bit more because it is it just blows my mind. No, this is a fascinating uh, insight. So uh, if you overlay another map on top of all of that and you look at the witch hunts that were going on, particularly in the 15th and 16th century, they line up, again, perfectly with the conditions for ergot growing in those areas. So there's definitely, uh, you know, some, some logic behind this. Uh, you even find examples uh, in the stomach contents of preserved bog bodies in Western Europe, going back as much as 2,000 years. This goes back to our uh, desiccated remains episode. That's right. Gabala Man, one of the best preserved bog bodies, uh, was found with a very vicious uh, wound to the throat. His head was almost completely cut off, and he was then thrown into this bog. Uh, People speculated for a long time, why would they murder him? Why was he to die? Was he a criminal? Was he somebody who uh, had... um, you know, betrayed the community. Who was he? And quite surprisingly, they found within his stomach contents that were pretty well preserved, large, large amounts of the alkalines associated with ergot poisoning. Uh, So in other words, he looked like he was possessed in some way. Yeah, he was probably suffering from the same exact hallucinations uh, and and convulsions that other people were suffering from with with this poisoning. Oh, that's sad. That means they probably killed him just Without real just cause. I mean, yeah. of course, they were feared for their lives more than likely, but... Yeah, but they, they thought he was a witch. So they, they killed him and threw him into the bog body, or to the bogs. And so here you have precedence for this, right? You have an actual example of it. We know that people were, were suffering from it. And it has continued even into the modern world today. So uh, very interesting. In 1951 is probably one of the most recent outbreaks of ergot poisoning. And a great opportunity for us to study it and record... Uh, its effects on a community, and to see how quickly it would spread. Because uh, in a small French village, uh, Pont-Saint-Esprit, you have uh, a situation at this time where a local baker, well-known for his bread, was using, unbeknownst to him, a contaminated uh, sack of flour that had uh, the ergot fungus in it. This bread went out to the entire community, and almost 200 people became sick. Obviously, the, the media was there to record the entire thing. So you, you actually have video of individuals going through these convulsions, and it's terrifying. It looks like something from out of the exorcism. I swear, it looks exactly like the movie's portrayals of possessed individuals. And you had these terrifying accounts of people who were dreaming about having snakes 
uh, in their bed and and being covered in them, uh, dreaming about blood, or not dreaming, but hallucinating about blood uh, dripping down from the walls. Uh, A lot of people had reported seeing animals, wild animals in their homes. People were jumping to their deaths from their homes because they were afraid that they were being chased by wolves. And you had uh, many members of the community dying just from the the effect of the poisoning itself and not just the, the hallucinations driving them to, to do things. And this spread within a matter of hours uh, and afflicted almost 200 people in the community. Well, so, that's, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, the power of this is amazing. And you cannot deny, you know, that if this were to happen 300 years earlier in a community in France, you could easily see people considering this to be the work of the devil. And looking for a scapegoat and looking to witches to be that scapegoat. Sure. And I think that's the point I'm really getting at, which is that in the in our modern or postmodern world, with medical science being what it is, it would be very hard to to label this as a supernatural occurrence now that we know what we know about this fungus. Well, you'd be surprised at how many people in that community thought it was an act of God. Sure. And thought that it was people in the community who were not being... Uh, Good to God <laughs> that we're causing this to, to happen to people. Sure. So, so even at that time in 1951, uh, people initially saw this as a as an act of God. Yeah. Well, you know, to take a, to, to take a step to the side for a moment. Um, when we're talking about the 15 and 1600s, you know, the witch hunts were rampant in in Europe at this point. Yeah. And you know, of course, we're also talking about the Inquisition going on as well. So. You know, the church was trying to preserve itself in any way it could from both sides, from people who were dissenters and from people who they thought were just were blasphemers. Um, and that brings us to the unfortunate occurrence of Miss Joan of Arc, who is now a saint in the Catholic Church. She was canonized uh, on the 500th anniversary of her execution, actually. Oh, good for her. Yeah, in 1945. But contrary to popular belief, she was not actually burned at the stake for, for witchcraft. Hmm. Huh. At least not technically. There's a great article about her on uh, the History Channel website, history.com. Really? Hmm. Called Seven Things You Didn't Know About Joan of Arc. I will just read from it quickly. It says, at least not technically. So, after falling into enemy hands in 1430, Joan of Arc was tried in the English stronghold of Rouen by an ecclesiastical court. Basically means she was tried by the church. Uh, The 70 charges against her ranged from sorcery to horse theft. But by May 1431... Uh, they had been whittled down to just 12, mostly related to her wearing of men's clothing and claims that God had directly contacted her. It's commonly believed in the non-religious world that the symptoms that Joan of Arc was uh, exhibiting of her seeing, of hearing God's voices or, seeing, or, the, or the visions she was hearing would have probably been considered schizophrenia. Almost certainly. That would also to be perfectly honest, as a Catholic, would also negate her miracles and thus not deem her eligible to be considered a saint either. Ooh, double-edged sword. So, uh, the church retracting those statements is not likely. I mean, they did the St. Christopher. We don't have to sacrifice any more saints. Right. You know? Uh, especially not this one. The one that they, they, they already backtracked on in saying, no, she wasn't a blasphemer. She really wasn't. Sorry. Uh, you know? So... Basically, they offered her life imprisonment in exchange for an admission of guilt, and Joan signed a document confessing her alleged sins. However, uh, and this movie, this was depicted very well in the movie The Messenger, uh, which was the story of, of Joan of Arc. She had some guards who were threatening some very evil things. They were threatening to assault her in my ways I won't, I won't mention, yeah. unless she put back on her male clothing. And the moment she did, they complained to, they called the bishop and said, witchcraft, 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 because supposedly those clothes had not gotten in there by by natural means. Mm. Basically, it, it was a total smear campaign. It's a setup. So, total setup. And so because of that, uh, she became a relapsed her- heretic, and that's why she was burned at the stake. Well, she was on a good plan. Uh, she hadn't gotten her first chip yet, but uh, eventually, yeah, she did. She should fall off the heresy wagon. So there you go. Well, that's sad. You know, Very sad. Yeah. You, you think of ergot poisoning, you think of all the innocent people who were killed because of it, then you think of mental illness, and you think of all the innocent people who were killed as a result of that. Yeah. The lack of understanding is what, in many cases, led to these people to die. Yeah, but keep in mind, too, that Joan of Arc was a commander of a French army. She couldn't be respected as a woman if she looked like a woman. 
she had to look like everybody else, right? Because if you're in a soldier mindset, if you're in an army, it's all about uniformity. Sure. Right? So, of course, she was going to cut her hair and put on male clothing because she had to look like she was one of one of their own. Yeah. Right? Um, very sad. Very, very sad. And very sad that they brought that as a charge against her, too. You know? Well, speaking of Joan of Arc and speaking of women in general, women have been singled out in the Western world for witchcraft almost exclusively. Certainly men have been associated with witchcraft. But few and far between. Yeah, much fewer. Women more often than not. And this is where we talk about the underlying sexism of the system. <laughs> yeah. Going back to Dan Brown's argument within the, the Da Vinci Code, again, definitely a fictitious story, but it, it does make you kind of go, hmm. The big thing about the pagan religion, right, it was that who was the more powerful of those two gods? Was it the male or the female? And in fact, it was the female. It was the mother god. The mother god was the way more powerful one, was really the dominant of the, of the two gods in that, this diatheistic system and the church had, had a problem with that because their god the one that they wanted was male the right. one that they had been they referred to god as father right in christian judeo tradition men were the lords of the household no it was a very male hierarchical system so almost a total reversal of what most ancient cultures right. believed so exactly many many ancient cultures believed in women in native american culture right it was more more likely that the woman was going to be in charge of the tribe than... Yeah, we have Mother Earth. Ex- you know, exactly. You, you have examples of this. And in pagan tradition, absolutely, 100%. And women were treated on a more equal level and seen as being equal healers to men in the in that tradition of those Wicca, of the wise. Exactly. Um, and while this was probably not the, the forefront of their, of their thought process... It, it sure didn't hurt. Had, it sure didn't hurt. <laughs> and it's unfortunately now become ingrained very deeply in i think in that mindset because now when you think of which what do you think of you think of a woman you think of a woman right away exactly you don't think of a man no we've had to create whole other titles for it now it's a warlock is a male witch uh even though it's the same thing witches are witches it doesn't matter there there is no sex assigned to it and it's because of gender expression you know it is what it comes down to We'll, we'll talk about that in another episode about gender roles history gender roles because that's a fascinating topic um but this just plays into plays into those whole ideas of of gender roles in that part of history sure well you know obviously women were were an easy target for it and the church definitely had a lot uh, on its mind and a lot that it wanted to do but a lot of people beside the church were accusing people of being witches and it it does again kind of come back to a, its religious tie-in because in the 14th and 15th centuries, and the 16th and 17th even as well, uh, there was belief that there were forces around everybody who were forces against God, who were devils and demons and people who were constantly uh, a negative and evil force. And these could take the form of your neighbor, these could take the form of, of just about anybody. Uh, which is sad, because essentially people who were accused of being witches kind of fell into one of a few different categories. One we've talked about a lot, which was uh, illness, right? Either a physical illness caused by ergot, for example, or other hallucinogens, uh, and or mental illness, like schizophrenia. And then you have people who are simply uh, that well-meaning healer in that community as well, who've now, for whatever reason, lost their authority, lost their trust, and now are seen in a negative light. But then you also have folks who are totally normal people, People who are caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time in association with other individuals and or people who did nothing but kind of gain uh, the anonymity of their neighbors. They did something that they didn't like. So what do they accuse them of? Witchcraft. Everyone's seeing demons and negative forces around them. So they're more than willing to go along with it. I am so glad you brought this up. Because that would lead me to, well, can we jump over the pond to, uh, yeah. to the Americas at this Let's point? Let's do it. Thank God. Okay, cool. <laughs> not, that, not that I haven't loved talking about Europe, but like we got to get to this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right? Salem, Massachusetts, 1692. Yes, you have this ergot poisoning. In fact, the site that I pulled up from Washington State University mentioned ergot poisoning as well. So there's definitely a lot of momentum and credibility behind this theory. You know, you essentially have... Uh, one of the most famous examples of witch hunting in history now going on. And it was documented most uh, probably, probably the most famously in Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, 
which I have had the pleasure to be a part of and read, of course, in high school like every other 11th grader. <laughs> Again, we're all shocked, Brian. Yeah. We're all shocked. But here's what I find really fortunate. So Arthur Miller did a lot of research um, into the Salem Witch Trials, and m- mostly the reason why he wrote the play was not about witchcraft, and contrary to popular belief, The Crucible is not about McCarthyism either. He saw what was happening with McCarthy and saw the parallels to the witch trials, and that's why he wrote the play when he did. The person who directed the play that I was in um, was fortunate enough. She played Mary Warren in the 1991 cast of The Crucible that was directed by Arthur Miller. Oh, really? So I felt very fortunate to have uh, Gwen as my director because she had a very authoritative view of the work, right? Um, And we talked very much about... uh, adding one key element back into that play because the play initially starts in the bedroom where for those who don't know the crucible i'm I'm shocked number one but if you don't know the story of the crucible the inciting incident is that these girls have been found dancing in the woods with tituba who is a um, caribbean slave woman who has basically been teaching them witchcraft is what they're is what they're claiming and one of the girls uh, has fallen ill and is basically in a catatonic state who happens to be the daughter of the town reverend so it looks really 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 bad and um and that just kind of gets this spiral of hysteria going through the town um one of the chief offenders though is a girl named abigail williams and now the real abigail williams um was probably about 13 when this really took place um, I think she's was aged up to be about 16 or 17 in Miller's play. And uh, basically, to make a long story short, Tichiba was showing them, you know, doing some sort of uh, ritual that was probably more closer, I would say, to voodoo uh, or Santeria, not the traditional form of, of witchcraft as we're, as we're perceiving it. They get caught by the reverend, and now they have to save themselves. So they start to say that they had seen other people who are witches and that they were being influenced by them. And basically, it was to save themselves is what it was. It really was. But and the book does not talk about ergot poisoning. The 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 the, uh, the script of the play, I should say. Yeah, that 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 was a development that came yeah. about. You know, more recent. decades later. Yeah, yeah. this is the, the the play talks about as a complete machination of these girls just to exact revenge and just to save themselves. And one of them is that Ab- Abigail names uh, a former lover of hers, his wife, uh, John Proctor. Now, the real John Proctor was in his 60s when he was hanged for witchcraft. He was aged down to be about his 30s or 40s right? in the version that Miller produced because 16, 13 is just creepy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just flat out creepy. No, and, no real need to say. Yeah, it. it's, and, it's and, understood. And and the romance was was completely dramatized. I right. don't think there's any historical. None of this actually happened. No. But what I do find really interesting is the character I played, and there is an element here I think that plays within all this ergot poisoning as well. Was there were definitely people who seized the opportunity. The character I played was Mr. Thomas Putnam, and for those who are unfamiliar with the the cast of characters, Thomas Putnam was a very wealthy landowner in Salem. And he was also kind of greedy when it came to his land. It doesn't stand to reason that he would start to accuse other people who potentially had land that he claimed was originally his family's land as witches. Because if you were a witch, all your property was seized to the state or was seized to the government at that point. Interesting point of fact that Miller mentioned in his research, every single one of the depositions of uh, the accused of witches of uh, witchcraft were in Putnam's handwriting. Mm. So, what do you think that tells that you? Sneaky bastard. Yeah, and I played him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so go figure. Yeah, capitalism at its finest, right there. Pretty much sowing the seeds of capitalism in uh, Puritan America, with, with laced with ergot. <laughs> yeah, laced with ergot. Capitalism laced with ergot. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I, I find the whole trial itself to be quite fascinating because it is called the Salem Witch Trials, but the, the truth is. Uh, over 150 people were accused, arrested, and imprisoned from, from from other areas too, not just in Salem. Right, from the entire region. And if you if you think about it from that sense of a, of of what would have been affected in terms of crops, right, it makes sense that it spreads beyond just this one village. The likelihood of this of one course. village being afflicted and no no one else doesn't make sense to support that argument. But when you realize it's the whole area that's been contaminated, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. And eventually, 19. People were hung. 14 women, 5 men. The other people got off. The reason they did is because they confessed. Because they said, yes, I'm a witch. I don't want to die. And they didn't kill them. This is Puritan New England. 
they broke away from a lot of really horrible, heinous things that were going on within their own communities back in England. That's the reason they came to the New World, was to practice their, their religion, and they were deeply religious people. So they they were not of the mindset to just go around and, and, and kill people willy-nilly. They needed a reason for it, and this was a very strong reason to them, but just as strong a reason for those 19 people to be hung to not confess. Because in their eyes, to confess to being a witch was a to confess. To repent, essentially. Yeah, well, not only that, just to confess to, to committing a crime of God. Right. For which death was preferable. Not only that, but there was a legal status to what witchcraft was. I mean, Miller even says it, and this is totally true. It's ipso facto. Ipso facto means it's, it's an invisible crime. Yeah. Right? Which means the only people you can question are the victim and the witch. And if the witch is naturally going to deny... They took part of it, so the only person you can believe is the, the, the victim's testimony. And them being good Christian people think, well, why would someone lie about accusing somebody about that? Because these were a very pious community. Yeah. Um, well, these girls who started all in the village of Salem, they, they suffered from the same affliction that you find of these people in 1951 in France. The descriptions yeah. are identical. What yeah. also I find fascinating is that in 1951, a dog was recorded to have uh, eaten some contaminated bread. And it started whirling and twirling around, and it started biting at the air and suffering from hallucinations and actually biting on rocks and breaking off its teeth. A really horrible and horrific account of, of what it could do to not just people, but to animals. Oh, yeah. A parallel in Salem. Leading up to this, when people started getting sick in the community and started suffering from these, the, the poisoning, people did not want to talk about witchcraft. They, they wanted to avoid it. One of the tests that they did was you to take... talk about witch cakes? Witch cakes, exactly. Oh, thank you for bringing this up. Yeah. I was going to do it if you didn't. Well, they, they, they would bake bread, and they would soak it in the urine of someone who was thought to be uh, under a spell or charm, and they fed it to a dog. Yeah, and if the dog would start to exude strange behavior, yep. it was... Uh, to be the sign of the witch. Never mind the fact that the the bread probably had the ergot in that's, it. <laughs> that, that's exactly it. It wasn't it wasn't the urine that was doing anything. It, it was if it was it was a very you know minute doses. It was the freaking bread that the dog was eating that was causing this to happen. So the hysteria just kind of builds on top of itself. And how do you confront hysteria? How do you keep your entire community from from going crazy? You line people up, you accuse them of being the people, you come to some sort of resolution, whether it is they confess and or they die. And that's what witch trials have always been about. It's always been about a community in fear, trying to keep order, trying to keep everything civil, ironically. And uh, this is why hundreds of thousands of people died throughout Europe and uh, many cases in the Americas, some of them continuing as late as 1833 in, in Tennessee in America last uh, accused witch <laughs> that we know of in America was, was accused at that time. Wow. Uh, and you find that it's sad, but it is something that is prevalent in not just Western culture, but around the world. Mm -hmm. People have been used as scapegoats by being yeah. witches, which including is sad. Go including goats. Which is sad. And you know what? It gives a bad rep to you know the neo-pagans of today, uh, which is a very much a modern movement. It is uh, derived, however, from ancient pagan traditions, predominantly yeah. in Western I mean, the Europe Wiccan, and The Wiccan religion that you're referring to really only dates back to the late 1960s. In an organized form, yeah. 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 And obviously, again, uh, members who are followers of the belief do definitely have uh, uh, beliefs that, that date back many thousands of years, but they're they're very different, most likely, than they, they, they were. Yeah, it's form. much more respectful toward nature. And it's much more spiritual. It's not... What's one of the first things it tries to dispel is the feeling that magic can be what we've assumed it, it has been, which is this ability to have control over nature. Yeah. Rather, no, it is it is you finding harmony with nature. And yes, do they still call them the prayers they say spells? Absolutely. Do they still believe in the ideas of curses? Not so much. Negative energy more. And do they call it a curse? Occasionally, but it's not... You can't curse somebody else, right. you, you know, in, in Wicca. You're not meant to be a negative force. You're meant to be a positive force. Because exactly. you acknowledge that there are negative forces about you. Exactly. So, yeah. And, and it's sad because a lot of folks who are, you know, Wicca are also treated rather badly. Uh, when it's just a belief system like any other. You know, it's, 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 it's a religious uh, system of, of 
religious uh, doctrine. Yeah, and in a way, like it, it's where you start to see the more European version of which versus the anthropological version of which, because right. they have to. Um, there's a, a ceremony where they they ask the tree permission to use it for a wand, yeah, and, and they take the branch out and they carve it into a wand, and it's a very and that's a big deal if you get your get your wand, and it's again it's just a just a focusing tool. It's no different than us praying in front of a crucifix, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, rituals associated with religion all over the place. So yeah. exactly. Well, this has been fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't talk a whole lot about the black hats and broomsticks and cats and things like that, but we did. We talked about it last year on our Halloween episode. So if you want to go back and reference uh, some of that when we talked yeah, about Yeah, and we mentioned witches. the broomstick, I think, in the magic. We, we, we've mentioned them in previous episodes. Yeah, so there's elements in, that have been peppered about this, but we really wanted to talk about, about witches and where they come from and, and leading up, of course, into the Salem witch trials and some of the more interesting theories about how people have been associated with witchcraft, because... That's something that um, you don't hear a whole lot about during the Halloween time because you, you hear about it in those yeah. a, a way of explaining the iconography behind the current image of a witch yeah. as opposed to the real history behind witches. I, well, I think the pointed hat. I mean, if we want to just throw, if people just must know because I think that might be the one thing we didn't talk about mm. is uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna wing it here, so you have to forgive me. I didn't research it, but if I remember correctly. It's supposed to be a Wiccan symbol of your connection to the goddess. Hmm. That's why it's pointing upwards, is toward toward the goddess. The brim is just functional more than more than oh, anything. Okay, I, I'm just gonna go go on a limb and say that it's, that's the part of it. And then, of course, when you're trying to make it into a negative symbol and associate it with the, the negative aspect of witches, it turns black and it has you know the point is oftentimes kind of bent. Yeah, so it, it, it's you know you can see with the evolution of it. So, folks, now that we're edging into Halloween, which is a favorite holiday for many people in our country uh, as well as across the world. Um, think about that for a second. If you're thinking about being a witch, know the context of what you're getting into. And you know what? Not to say it's wrong, because, hey, we all like to have fun and be somebody else for a, for a day or so. But you know what? Spark a conversation. Talk about witches. Talk about where they come from. Yeah, I challenge one of you listeners to go out there and, and don a traditional witch outfit. <laughs> Try to dress as best you can as an ancient pagan. <laughs> See if anyone gets it. Exactly. Because I think that's pretty neat. I think that'd be, that'd be fun. Yeah, totally. This has been great. This has been fascinating. Listeners, if you have uh, feedback, please feel free to give it to us. You can reach us, of course, uh, on our website, nerdonomy.com. Uh, you can also reach us on the Twitter. I am at the Brickmont, And I am at Brian Moriarty. And, of course, you can follow us on our company Twitter account at Nerdonomy. Yes, and this is the uh, the season of treats, and so if you'd like to give Nerdonomy a lovely little Halloween treat, please go ahead and give us a donation. We can use it. We still need to pay off our equipment. <laughs> we do indeed. Uh, we've also got that roof, and we're hoping because rain's going to come soon, and we want to help dampen the sound so you don't hear any rain while we are podcasting. And frankly, it's going to start getting cold. <laughs> it's going to get cold. We need to get insulation and a roof in here, or a ceiling, I should say. Yes, indeed. Eric, uh, is it is... Uh, it is always a pleasure, of course. Of course. And we'll be back next week. And we, we know what we're going to do next week. Uh, we do. We already have a plan. <laughs> should we tell them now or are we going to yeah, tell let's, them? Yeah, I think this whole month. Tune in next week for Nerds on History, where Brian and Eric discuss vampires. <laughs> yeah, va- vampires is going to be fun. Uh, we've got a special cold open plan for you. Something that... Uh, oh, it's going to be so funny. Uh on the vein of some of our more theatrical ones that we've done before uh, but we'll leave it at that we're not going to spoil it for you it's going to be a lot of fun so join us please next week uh, and uh, of course of course until we meet again stay nerdy folks and tune in next week same nerd time same nerd channel nerdonomy.com bye 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 So, Brian, uh, you, you know the, the skit we did in the beginning? Yeah. There's actually some truth behind that. Bullshit. Yeah. Not so much bullshit now, is it? <laughs>